Well, thanks very much, Justin. Uh, if you do have a Bible, please turn to Luke chapter 11. We're going to be in verses 1 to 13 this morning. And uh, as you turn there, let me just uh, say it's uh, a real pleasure to be with you this morning and get to open up God's Word uh, with you. I, uh, we, we pray for your church regularly at Stirling Park, and so it's really great to be able to come out and actually um, see the people that we pray for. Um, so it's nice to put faces to a, to a name. And so, um, yes, yeah, so thank you for having us, uh, me and my wife and my daughter. It's really great to be here. So Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything, I tell you. Though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, Will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Well, I, uh, I wonder if you ever heard the story of a student who, years ago before uh, email and text messages, he wrote, uh, wrote home to his parents from university Dear mom and dad, I'm sorry not to have been in touch all semester. It's been a difficult few weeks, to be honest. First, our dormitory caught fire in week three, and I only escaped by jumping from a third-story window. But please don't worry, I think I was fortunate to escape with just two broken legs and a broken pelvis. And I was looked after really well at the local hospital. There was a great team of nurses and, well, one lovely nurse in particular, and dear mum and dad, to cut a long story short, last Saturday, that nurse and I got married. I'm sure it'll work out. And to be honest, I think my friends are not right to be alarmed by the differences in our religions, national backgrounds, politics and language. I think as time goes on, we're going to be really happy. Dear mum and dad, please don't be worried about anything I've written. None of it's true. The truth is I've just failed my first semester's exams I just wanted you to get things into perspective. <laughs> you know, sometimes perspective makes all the difference. And that's especially true when it comes to prayer. From our perspective, prayer can often seem like a frustrating and futile activity, can't it? It doesn't really feel productive. It's hard work. It feels unnatural. 
it doesn't often produce immediate results. In fact, sometimes it doesn't seem to produce any results whatsoever. We wonder, does prayer make a difference? Am I doing something wrong? Does God actually care about the things that I'm praying for? Does God even care about me? From our perspective, prayer can seem pointless. And so we either don't pray or when we do, we have pretty low expectations. We do it because we know we should, but we don't expect anything to actually happen. But perspective makes all the difference. That's why it's important that we get God's perspective on prayer. What does God have to teach us about prayer in his word? And in our passage this morning that we just read, God teaches us three things about prayer. So the first thing he teaches us is the need to pray. The need to pray. So if you look down at verse 1, you'll notice the context of our passage. We learned that Jesus was praying in a certain place. Now, we're just jumping straight into the middle of Luke's gospel this morning, but if we'd have read it from the beginning, we'd have noticed that this isn't a unique event because throughout Luke's gospel, we see that Jesus prayed all the time. So let me just give you a few quick examples. So in Luke chapter 3, verse 21, we read this. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. Luke 5, 15, 16 But now even more the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Luke 6, 12, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. Luke 9, 18, now it happened that he, as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. Luke 9, 28, now about eight days after these things, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. You get the point. Jesus prayed and he prayed all the time. But why is this significant? Well, think about who Jesus is for a second. Jesus is the eternal son of God. All things were made through him and for him. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus upholds the whole universe by the word of his power. If anyone could have gotten through life prayer-free, if anyone could have gotten through life making it on his own, it was Jesus. However, despite being the eternal son of God, Jesus still felt the need to pray. No matter what time of the day it was, how busy he was, how in demand he was, Jesus felt it necessary to pray to his heavenly father. That's because Jesus wasn't simply the eternal son of God. When Jesus took on flesh, he became fully human. He became like you and me in every way, with one notable exception, Jesus was without sin. And so when we look at Jesus, we actually see humanity as it was meant to be. The love, the compassion, the humility, the wisdom, the joy, the grace, all those things that we love about Jesus, that's what humanity was supposed to look like. And that's why Jesus prayed so much. Because as the perfect man, Jesus was fully dependent on his heavenly father. He was completely reliant on the Holy Spirit. Jesus knew the need for prayer. Let me ask you, when you look at your life, 
when you reflect on how you live each day, would you say that you realize the need for prayer? Or maybe let me ask you as a church, when you look at your church calendar, when you think about the content of your services, when you consider the times that you gather together as believers during the week, would you say that you realize the need for prayer? Because if Jesus needed to pray, then my guess is that so do we. Think about it, everything that we want in life, both individually and as a church, is totally out of our control, isn't it? As individuals, we are dependent on God for life and breath and everything. Our health, our job, our security, our safety, our ambitions, our plans, our spiritual growth, our eternal destiny, none of these things are ultimately dependent on us. None of them are in our control. We are dependent on God for everything that we need. And this is not only true on an individual level, but on a corporate level too. So think of all of the things that you want to see happen as a church this year. I'm sure you want to see people come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I'm sure you want to see people grow in their faith. I'm sure you want to see people healed from past hurts, physical ailments, mental illness, spiritual oppression. I'm sure you want to see relationships restored, leaders raised up, sin conquered, churches planted, missionaries sent. Let me ask you, who is sufficient for these things? Now, I know in your head you're all saying God because you know that's the right answer, but what we really believe will evidence itself in whether or not we pray as a church, won't it? Of course, every church pays lip service to be independent on God, but in practice, too many churches neglect prayer because they're too busy being busy. Are you a church that prays? Do you realize the need for prayer? Do you believe that everything you want to see happen is completely and utterly dependent on God? Well, it's one thing to know that we need to pray, but the question is, how should we pray? And thankfully, the disciples had that exact same question in our passage. So after Jesus has finished praying, we read in verse one, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. So even though prayer is something that should come naturally to us, the truth is that it doesn't, does it? We are broken people who need to be taught how to pray. And thankfully, we get to learn from the master himself. And so that brings us to our second point this morning, the way to pray. The way to pray. So if you look in verses two to four, you see that Jesus gives his disciples a model for prayer. And even if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you probably know this prayer. It's often referred to as the Lord's Prayer. And they don't do this anymore. But when I was growing up in England, we would recite this, this prayer word for word in school. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. However, it's important to understand that what Jesus is doing here. He's not merely giving us something to recite. Nor has he given us a magic formula for prayer. Jesus has given us a theology of prayer. And the temptation when we look at this prayer is to just get lost in the details. And the details are important, and we'll look at them in a moment. But we mustn't miss the one overarching theme of the Lord's Prayer. Because there's actually one word or one idea that ties the Lord's Prayer together, and it's this. Ask. Ask. 
When we boil it down, Jesus teaches us that prayer is about asking God. Paul Miller, who wrote a great book called The Praying Life, he said that all of Jesus' teaching on prayer in the Gospels can be summarized with one word, ask. So even in this short prayer, Jesus teaches us five, he teaches us to ask God for five different things. And unfortunately, we don't have time to plumb the depths of each one this morning because each line really deserves a sermon of its own. However, we'll just take a few uh, moments on each one to offer some comments. So the first thing we're to ask God for is found in verse two. So look at verse two, hallowed be your name. God's name stands for who he is and what he's like. Now in our English translations, this doesn't sound like a prayer request, does it? It sounds like a statement of something that's already true. It sounds like praise. It sounds like Jesus is telling us to say, Lord, hallowed is your name. But actually, in the original language, it's clear that this is actually an appeal for God's name to be hallowed. It's a request. Jesus is saying, ask God to make his name hallowed on the earth. Now, we don't usually use the word hallow anymore except at Halloween, but to hallow something is to treat it as holy. It's to revere something for being glorious and transcendent. And this is what Jesus puts right at the top of his list. When we pray, we should pray that God's glorious name would be revered and respected for the whole world to know and worship the God of heaven. You know, the temptation is to think that prayer is fundamentally about asking God for the stuff that we need. And we'll get to that in a moment, but Jesus gives us God's perspective on prayer. And he makes it clear that God's glory should be our primary concern when we come to him in prayer. And this is reinforced by the second thing Jesus asks us to pray for in verse 2. Your kingdom come. You know, as we live in a broken world, we should pray that God's glorious rule will be realized. You know, we know that the answer to the problems of the world are, are not to be found in us. They're not to be found in, in a political system or, or anything that we can bring. But actually, we need God's kingdom to come to this earth to solve the brokenness. And so we should pray for God's rule in every area of, our, of life, whether beginning in our own hearts, in our families, in our church, in our community, in our nation, in our world. And here's one reason why it's important to pray this. We need to recognize that it's God's kingdom, not our kingdom, that's of primary importance. You know, the default mode of our hearts is the thing that life is all about us, isn't it? We want to build our own little kingdoms where everything works according to the counsel of our will. We naturally want God to make our glory and known and our plans come to pass. And so we need our hearts reorientating. We need our, our souls refocused. Our personal plans and ambitions, will they come second to the kingdom of God? And prayer helps us do that. I wonder when you pray as individuals and as a church, whose kingdom is of primary concern? Is it God's or is it yours? I found that convicting this week. The third thing Jesus tells us to ask for is found in verse 3. Give us each day our daily bread. At this point in the prayer, the, the focus shifts from God to us. Now, is Jesus limiting our prayer requests to simply ask him for bread? You know, what if you're gluten-free? You know, 
what then? Well, bread was the staple food back then. You know, nobody went on a carb-free diet in Jesus' day. If you didn't have bread, you died. So it, it seems that there's a principle behind Jesus' words here. Martin Luther, he said the daily bread is actually a symbol. It's a symbol for everything necessary for the preservation of life. In other words, bread is what you've got to have. Now think about this for a second. Notice how this prayer has shifted. It's shifted from the majestic to the ordinary, from the holy to the common, from God's glorious kingdom to our daily bread. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that God cares about us. Not only that, but he cares about the smallest details of our lives. He cares about where our next meal is coming from. He cares about those medical bills. He cares about those car problems. He cares about your lack of sleep. He cares about that health issue. He cares about your loneliness. He cares about your job situation. He cares about your overwhelming to-do list. He cares about the hardships of being a parent. He cares about your marriage conflict. The smallest and most trivial things in your life are not small and trivial to God. He cares. He cares so much that he actually wants you to come to him daily. He actually wants us to ask him for the things that we need and to keep on asking. He's never like a grumpy and distracted dad who just wants to have his own space. God never gets tired of us coming to him. Isn't that amazing? Martin Lloyd-Jones said it best. He said, if only we could grasp this fact that the almighty Lord of the universe is interested in every part and portion of us, there is not a hair of my head that he's not concerned about. And the smallest and most trivial details in my life are known to him on his everlasting throne. I hope that encourages you this morning. Whatever you're going through, the hardships of life, how small and trivial they may seem in the grand scheme of things, they're not small and trivial to God. The four things Jesus tells us, four things Jesus tells us to ask for is in verse four. And forgive us our sins, as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Notice that Jesus makes three assumptions here. His first assumption is that God forgives sins. And God's forgiveness isn't something that needs to be earned, but received. Because if forgiveness was earned, then we wouldn't actually have to ask God for it, would we? We'd just do our religious duty, we'd do our good deeds, we'd tick all the boxes, and forgiveness would be our reward. However, God's forgiveness doesn't work like that. God's forgiveness is a gracious gift There's nothing we can do to earn it. No amount of religious duty, no amount of moral goodness can earn God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness must be received as a gracious gift. So Jesus encourages us to humbly ask for it when we come to him in prayer. Do you feel your need for forgiveness this morning? Are you weighed down by the guilt and shame from things that you've done? Well, Jesus has good news for you. Whoever you are, God offers forgiveness to all who would sincerely ask. 
In fact, if we kept reading in Luke's gospel, we would see that that is exactly why Jesus came. Jesus did not come to just teach us how to pray. He did not come to just be an example to us of how we should pray, but we don't meet that example. Actually, Jesus came for one big purpose, and that was to die. You see, for God to forgive us, he couldn't just sweep our sin under the carpet like it was no, such, no big deal. Because God is holy and just, and therefore our sins need to be punished. And the punishment for sin, the Bible tells us, is death. However, Jesus came and he died in our place for our sin. He took the punishment that we deserved, and three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating death. And so now God offers us forgiveness. He offers us forgiveness to anyone who would ask him, who would, for anyone who would trust in Christ. So if you haven't done that, then I urge you this morning to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust that he died for your sin and rose from the grave so that you can be made right with God, to ask God for forgiveness because Jesus died in your place. So that's the first assumption that God forgives sins. The second assumption follows from the first, really, that we are all sinners. All of us. We need forgiveness, not just simply the people out there. That all of us have fallen short of God's glory. That all of us have rebelled against God and lived however, however we've pleased. And what we see in the Bible is that sin is never an isolated event. So our sin against God always results in sin against other people. And so for us to approach God as sinners, we all do that in need of forgiveness. So prayer involves confessing our sins to God specifically and completely and asking him to graciously forgive us. Jesus' third assumption in verse 4 is that we are sinned against. So you and I approach God as people who've been wronged by others. Whether that's by drivers on the road or the guy at the office, the neighbor next door, people at church. Can you believe that? People on social media, our spouse. So it really shouldn't surprise us when people sin against us. It shouldn't shock us when people are inconsiderate or say hurtful things or do things to let us down. Jesus just assumes that's going to happen. And here's why this is important. As we come to God for forgiveness, we are asking God to do something for us that we ourselves are in a position to do for others. Just as we need God's forgiveness, Jesus assumes that other people need our forgiveness. Even so, we're often surprised when people sin against us, aren't we? Let's be honest. We know these things happen in principle, but when it actually happens, especially when it's people in church, we think, I can't believe they would do that. And it's tempting to let bitterness and anger stew in our hearts, but Jesus' prayer just pours cold water on the fiery anger of our hearts, doesn't it? How can we be unforgiving to others when God has been so forgiving to us? We can't. The fifth thing Jesus tells us to ask for is at the end of verse four, and lead us not into temptation. Now, Jesus isn't implying here that God will tempt us to sin if we don't ask him. You know, God's not like trying to trip us up like a schoolyard bully 
The book of James tells us that God cannot be tempted with sin and he tempts no one to sin. So Jesus is really just simply saying here that we should ask God to protect us from temptation. Not simply to lead us out of temptation, but to keep us from even even entering into temptation in the first place. I wonder how often you pray like this. You know, so when you wake up in the morning, do you ever pray that God would actually keep you from temptation? To protect you from circumstances and occasions that might even tempt you to sin? I'd hesitate to guess that for most of us, we rarely pray this. We usually wait until we're in the midst of temptation before we actually pray for deliverance from it. And I wonder if for some of us, if we're honest, that's because we like being tempted. That we actually enjoy flirting with sin. That we like to see how close we can get to the fire. We like to see how far we can get before we cross the line. And so we put ourselves in situations that invite temptation. Maybe we hang out with those, with that group of people, or we watch that TV show, which is a bit risque. Maybe we surf the internet when we're feeling lonely and we know that's not a good idea. We push the limits with our girlfriend or boyfriend. And then we wonder why it's just so hard not to fall into sin. And so Jesus challenges us to fight sin in our lives by praying that God would keep us from temptation, to start there when we come to God in prayer. And those are the five things Jesus tells us to ask for. And isn't it striking that when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, he basically says, ask, 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 ask. That's because Jesus knew two things. He knew that we are desperate and God is gracious. But here's the thing. I probably haven't told you anything that you don't already know. Most of us know that we should pray. Most of us know that we should ask God for the things that we need. We know these things, so why do we struggle so much with prayer? Why don't we pray enough as individuals and as a church? Well, this brings us on to the third point this morning, the motivation to pray. The motivation to pray. So if you and I are going to be faithful in prayer, we need something that destroys our low expectations. We need something to motivate us. And the motivation for prayer is found in who it is that we're praying to. Because who we're praying to makes all the difference in the world. So notice what word Jesus uses to describe who it is that we're praying to. It's there in verse 2, and it comes up again in verse 13. Father. When we pray, we are speaking to our heavenly Father. Now, we mustn't miss how radical Jesus' words are here. No one had ever spoken to God like that before. To address God in such personal and intimate terms was revolutionary. Think about what this means. When we pray, we're not simply addressing a divine judge. We're not simply approaching a sovereign king. When we pray, we are entering into the presence of our loving Heavenly Father. Why is this significant? 
Well, it seems that part of the reason we don't pray is because we just don't think it'll do anything. We don't think God actually cares about the things that we pray about. We don't believe God's actually loving enough and generous enough to give us the things that we ask for. But if we understood what it means that God is our Father, then we wouldn't cease to ask him for things that we need, however big and however small. Knowing that God is our loving Heavenly Father motivates us to pray. And so in verses 5 to 13, Jesus gives us two illustrations that show us what our Heavenly Father's like. So the first one's found in verse 5 to 8. Jesus, he says, imagine that you go to your friend's house at midnight. You bang on the door to, and you bang and you bang until he wakes up. And then you ask him for three loaves of bread. Someone from out of town has arrived at your house and you've, you've looked in the pantry and you've suddenly realized, oh no, we've, we're out of bread. And you didn't have any 24-7 stores back then, so the only hope you would have is to go to a friend's house and ask for bread. Jesus says, can you imagine your friend saying, don't bother me, I'm, it's late, the door's shut, I'm, everybody's in bed, go away. Jesus says, can you imagine a friend like that? Can you imagine a friend who would turn you away empty-handed? Now, this, il- this illustration is a bit lost on us because we live in Northern Virginia. You know, so if somebody wakes up, me up at midnight for a loaf of bread, they would never find the body. You know, like, we, we, would not, we would not tolerate somebody waking us up in the middle of the night for bread because we place a much higher priority on sleep and comfort than hospitality. But in ancient Palestine, hospitality was everything. To not give a friend bread to feed one of their guests was shameful. In fact, it would have been shameful on three levels. So it would have been shameful personally, but it would have also brought shame on your friend by returning them empty-handed. And it would have brought shame on the whole town. It would have communicated that this town is not hospitable to guests. That's why Jesus says, which of you has a friend like that? And the answer is nobody. Nobody had a friend like that. It'd be shameful to not answer the door. And so look at verse eight. Jesus says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, that's not why he's going to get up. Yet, because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, I'm sure you all know what that word impudence means, so I won't need to tell you. Now, I'm gonna, like, cause, I mean, that, that word impudence, who knows what that means, but it's actually a tricky Greek word, and it, and it means shamelessness. That's literally what it means. It means shamelessness. And in the context, it refers to the shame of refusing someone hospitality. So what's Jesus' point? Well, Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, If a selfish friend will meet your needs to avoid shame, how much more will your heavenly father meet your needs out of love? Therefore, Jesus says in verses 9 to 10, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And to the one who seeks, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. No matter what time of the day it is, 
when we go to God in prayer, he's never annoyed or impatient. He's never selfish or disinterested. He's never inconvenienced or stingy. Our Father longs to give us what we need. Therefore, we should ask, seek, and knock. And when we do ask, we should have great expectations because Jesus promises that God will actually give us what we need. Now, there's a question here that I'm sure you're all asking at this point. Well, what about when God doesn't give us what we ask for? You know, maybe some of you are even feeling a little frustrated at this point because you've asked God for things, good things, yet nothing's changed. You've asked God for your health to get better. You've asked God for your depression to lift. You've asked God for your anxiety to go away. You've asked God for your child to be saved. You've asked God for your broken marriage to be fixed. You've asked for that relationship to be restored. You've asked for a spouse, for a child, for a new job. You've asked for God to deliver you from that besetting sin. You've asked God to take away those suicidal thoughts. You've asked, but God hasn't answered. You've sought, but God seems distant. You've knocked, but quite frankly, no one seems to be home. And it's not like you're asking for a beach house in the Bahamas. You know, you're actually, you're asking for good, godly things. Things that you would think your heavenly father would delight to give you. So what about when God doesn't give us what we ask for? Well, I think Jesus anticipates this question in the next illustration. Look at verses 11 to 12. He says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? I have a one-year-old daughter named Ariella, and she just started asking me for specific foods. So when she wants a banana, she'll point at the fruit bowl and she'll say, Nana. Or when she wants some peas, she'll ask in a really high-pitched voice, Peas! And I love it. I never get tired of her asking for what she wants. And I'll usually grant her request. But sometimes, instead of a nana, I'll give her some blueberries. Or instead of peas, I'll give her some sweet potato. However, one thing I've never been tempted to do is instead of a nana, give her a ghost pepper. <laughs> or instead of giving her some peas to give her some raw chicken. It's never, never crossed my mind to do that. You'll be glad to know. That's because I love her. I'm either going to give her what she's asked for, or actually I'm going to give her something that's better than what she's asked for. I'm going to give her something that she actually needs more than a banana in that moment, that she actually needs more than some peas in that moment. And that's not because I'm this awesome dad. Like no one's sitting here thinking, oh, I need some parenting advice off this guy. You know, I'm just a, I'm just a sinful dad who loves his baby girl. I'm just like any normal parent. And so look at what Jesus says in verse 13. He says, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more would the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? 
No matter how good a parent we are, the reality is that compared to God, we're evil. Even though we love our kids, that doesn't change the fact that we're still sinners. And so all of our parenting is mixed with selfishness and impatience and foolishness. Even so, despite our sin, we still know how to give good gifts to our children. Therefore, how much more does God know how to give good gifts to us? How much more does he, or does our Heavenly Father know how to give us what we need? And so when God doesn't give us what we ask for, that's because he has something better. I'll say that again because it's so important and we need to believe this when our prayers seem to return empty. When God doesn't give us what we ask for, that's because he has something better. And to show that's the case, notice what Jesus says at the end of verse 13. He tells us specifically what our Father will give to those who ask. God will give us his Holy Spirit. Now, this is a surprising end to the passage. It seems to come out of nowhere, doesn't it? And at first, it might seem like a disappointment. Maybe you're thinking, well, that's great, but I haven't asked for the Holy Spirit. I want, I've asked for my depression to lift. You know, I've asked for a job so I can provide for my family. You know, I've asked for uh, my, my, uh, my mom to get better. Like, that's what I've asked for. But what we need to see is that this is actually the climax of the whole passage the gift of the Holy Spirit is better than anything else that we could ask for. Because when Jesus says that the Father will give us the Holy Spirit, he's telling us that God will give us himself. That God in the person of the Holy Spirit will come and live within us. And the Holy Spirit is better, is a better gift than anything that we could imagine asking God for. So let's just Quickly listen to, just listen to what the Bible tells us about the Holy Spirit's work. This is not exhaustive. The Holy Spirit reveals to us the truth about who God is and what God has done for us in the gospel. 1 Corinthians 2.12. The Spirit convicts us <clears throat> of our sin and grants to us the gift of repentance and faith. 1 Thessalonians 1.5. The Spirit unites us to Jesus by faith. 1 John 4.13. And so it's only because of the Holy Spirit that we receive all of the blessings that Jesus won for us on the cross. Justification, God declaring us righteous in his sight. Sanctification, God setting us apart as holy and conforming us to the likeness of Christ. Adoption, God bringing us into his family and making us his children so that we can actually cry out to God as our father. Those things are only possible because the Holy Spirit unites us to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Without the Spirit, salvation and all of the great things about salvation wouldn't be possible. But that's not all. The Spirit will help us to have victory over sin, Romans 8.13. The Spirit will grow us in godliness and holiness, 1 Corinthians 6.11. The Spirit will assure us that we are children of God, Romans 8, 15 to 17. The Spirit will comfort us when we are suffering, Philippians 2, 1. The Spirit will equip us with gifts for ministry, 1 Corinthians 12. The Spirit intercedes for us when we actually don't know what we ought to pray for. So even when we pray for the things that we want, we can be assured 
that behind the scenes, the Holy Spirit is actually praying for the things that we need. And lastly, one day the Spirit will raise us physically from the dead, just as he raised Jesus, and he will transform our lowly bodies into glorious resurrection bodies like our Savior, Romans 8, 11. Just see how the gift of the Holy Spirit is much better than anything that we might ask for. You know, God could give us everything that we ask for, but if he didn't give us his Holy Spirit, we'd have no hope. We'd perish in our sins, forever separated from Christ, eternally under the judgment of God. That's why J.C. Ryle said this, the Holy Spirit is beyond doubt the greatest gift which God can bestow upon man. Having this gift, we have all things, life, light, hope, and heaven. Having this gift, we have God the Father's boundless love, God the Son's anointing, atoning blood, and full communion with all three persons of the Blessed Trinity. Having this gift, we have grace and peace in the world that now is, glory and honor in the world to come. So if you're a Christian this morning, if you've trusted in Christ, then you have the Holy Spirit. And when you have the Spirit, we, you have everything that God has to give you. When God gives us his Spirit, he shows that he's holding nothing back from us. Nothing. That means that if you've asked God for something and he hasn't given you it, you can still trust him. You can trust that he isn't holding back on you. He has something better for you, even if you can't see it yet. We live by faith, but one day we shall live by sight. And we will see that God has indeed something better for us. So make 2018 a year where you pray and ask God for everything, big and small, important and seemingly trivial, both individually and as a church family. And as you do, have great expectations that God will give you everything you need. Sometimes you will see that, sometimes you won't. And how do we know that this isn't just some false promise? Well, God has already proved himself trustworthy by sending his most precious son to die for our sins. So let's listen to the Apostle Paul as we close. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. And Lord, we confess that we have not prayed as we ought. There's lots of reasons why that's the case, Lord. One of them is that we just don't believe that you are as good and loving as your word tells us you are. We don't believe that you'll give us the things that we need. Lord, forgive us for our lack of faith and trust. But Lord, we come here today not because of our own goodness, not because we are really faithful, but we come here because the Lord Jesus came and he died in our place for our sins. And so we can come to you with all of our brokenness, all of our faithlessness, and we can ask you for your forgiveness, knowing that you give it to us generously. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us 
Help us, Lord, to be bold, have great expectations in prayer, to come to you regularly and ask you for the things that we need, trusting that you will give us what we need. And we can trust that, Lord, because you gave us your only son and you've sent your Holy Spirit to live in our hearts who is interceding for us. And he is the best gift. So Lord, as we come to the table now, to be reminded of what you've done for us in the gospel, to be reminded of the fellowship we have with you in Christ, we pray that you would increase our faith. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.